If you will, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We today continue a series on the model church, the model church. This is the third of the series, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And we'll pause there to just give you an explanation if you didn't catch it up. This church had been born in the midst of adversity and opposition. And as followers of Christ, they had told the story of the gospel. The gospel had sounded forth, but they didn't just tell the story. They lived the story because now their faith had gone everywhere. The word had sounded forth and their faith had gone forth because they had gone in their community and they had lived their faith. Now, let's continue. And, and it says, your faith in God has gone everywhere so that Paul's talking about him and Silas and Timothy, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves, now who are they themselves? That's the lost world. Are you listening? For they themselves, the lost world, report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. And what kind of reception? How did they receive Paul and Silas and Timothy when they came preaching the gospel? Watch this. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Can you say that word with me? Jesus. Oh, thank you. Would you repeat His name again? Jesus. One more time. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today that Your Word will come alive for us on the paper to the point that we have to adhere to it, that we have to respond to it, that we have to do what you have called us to do and be what you've called us to be and serve like you've called us to serve. Father, would you be with us in these next minutes as we share together? In Jesus' name, amen. I admit my sin to you today. I have always been a junkie for a legal show. I just love to see those lawyers go in the courtroom. Now, you guys won't know who I'm talking about. This goes all the way back to a guy named Perry Mason. I loved Perry Mason. He always won. He always got his man. And not only did he win, he got his man. You know who else? Matlock moved forward about 20 or 25 years. Matlock did the same thing. He he was great. Then I watched other things, L.A. Law. There's a whole bunch of them out there. But my last one that I really loved was one called Jag. I'll just tell you, somehow in that courtroom it mesmerized me, and by the way, because all these shows were so popular, me and millions of other Americans. But one of the things, one of the strengths of our jurisprudence system is this thing that only facts can be considered. And the facts are established not on the opinion of man, not on the opinion of one, not the facts are established by at least the preponderance of the evidence. Evidence. That's a powerful word. Evidence. You know, many of you have heard this, a message from somebody in your past. 
If you were accused of being a Christ follower, that is a Christian, if you were accused of being a Christ follower, is there enough evidence to convict you? Or would you get off with a hung jury? It stands to reason that if we're going to talk about the model church and evidence, as you see up there, if we're going to talk about that, then the question bears asking about this church. If there were enough, if there were charges brought against us for being a model church, a church of the living Lord Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict us? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question, but I live with that question. To me, that is a fundamental question for several reasons, and I'll not go into all of them. But it's a fundamental question because, listen, this is one thing we miss. One day, we're going to stand before the one who left heaven and came to earth to establish the church. He lived for the church. He empowered the church. He died for the church. He's now preparing for the grand entry of his church because one day he's coming back for his church. He loves his church. He's given his church assignments. And one of the greatest assignments that he's called us to be is his bride. And one day we're going to stand before him. And when we stand before him, here's what I want to be able to say. I want to say, Lord Jesus, as best as I knew how. I tried to be everything you wanted me to be, and I tried to do everything that you wanted me to do. If that's not reason enough, turn turn the page and... And the next part of that conversation is that when we're standing before him, we say, we did all we could do. You know what I really desire to hear? Well done. But I'll remind us all, like I've been reminding us for years, we will only hear a well done if we've done well in his eyes. This morning, we're going to talk about the Thessalonian church. It's not a perfect church, but many have called it a model church, a model which we can imitate. And and think about this. We can call them this model church because they fulfilled the Lord's command, because, because they were a role model. But as I read this text and I think about the evidence, there are three, at least three pieces of evidence. You can probably find some more, but there are three startling pieces of evidence that I want to present to you today that if we're going to be a model church, that we have to get our, our heads around, our hearts around, our arms around, our spirits around and embrace. The first thing that I would say to you, the first piece of evidence that a church is in fact a model church is this thing of salvation. Salvation. You know, before you have a church, people have to be saved. But, but people not only are saved to make a church, because we are a church, our goal is to have people be saved. Hello? That would have been a good place for an amen. Are y'all awake? Or is it so warm in here you, you nodded off to sleep? Here's what I want to say to you. Look in verse 9 for me, the last part of verse 9. It says, how you turned to God from idols. Now, if you want a parallel, go back to chapter verse 3 that we read last week where it says, remember before the Lord, our God and Father, your 
Work of faith. Work of faith. Turning to God from idols. You know, one of the things that caused this church so much trouble. Now, are you getting this? We don't know what it is to live in this culture. One of the things that caused this church so much trouble is that they did as a people, they did as a church, actually turn away from their idols and they turned to God. They left behind them their old way. They left behind them their past. They left behind them those, uh, even those uh, physical idols that they have. And out of their natural world, they came to Christ for a life change. Now, did you get that? A life changed. They abandoned the way it was before. They took on Christ. They turned to Christ. And the result was evident. Not only did they sound it forth and tell it, but their lies burst it forth on the scene. People could see. You see, salvation is that. If you haven't listened to anything else, please listen now. Salvation is a life change. It's not a matter of just coming and taking a preacher by the hand or walking through the waters of baptism and continuing to do like you've always done. When you come to Christ, you're changed. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible tells us for all of sin. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin, the payment for sin, the compensation for sin is eternal death. It don't matter whether you're 17 or 77. The scorecard's the same. There is none righteous. And the Bible tells us that God demonstrated His love in this. That while we were sinners, while we were on our way to hell, Christ died. He died for your sin. He died for mine. He loves you. But listen, God is too big to come into your life and leave you just like you are. When you invite Christ into your life, He changes you for time and eternity. He takes you from this natural state that we know ourselves to be in now, and He puts us in an eternal state with our eye on heaven. It's salvation. Many people, I'm afraid many people, even in this room, have done the thing that the culture has said. We've taken the preacher by the hand, we've uttered a few words, we've walked through baptism, and we sat on a pew, and there's been no life change, and we're hanging on to that. And one day, we're going to cross the River Jordan in this thing called death, and we're going to wake up on the other side, and it's not going to be what we thought it. When I think about the model church, it has to be about the salvation of people. I'll just tell you. I've been contemplating, praying about something. Hadn't talked to the deacons about it. Deacons will probably bring it up Tuesday night now that I've mentioned it. I'm thinking about when it gets springtime. I'm thinking about taking one of our Sunday services right out there on the parking lot. Do you know why? And I'm not going to put the pulpit back up here so you can't see the road. I'm going to put the pulpit up there where you can turn around and see the road so we can count cars while we're in service. How many people are really not connected in this community? We think we have a great community, and we probably do, but we don't have a spiritual community. Over my lifetime, I've had the opportunity to visit a number of really what I think are just great churches. I've told you some of them visited Olive in Pensacola Visited First Baptist Houston, Second Baptist Houston, Champion Forest Houston. Been able to visit Saddleback out in Southern California. Been able to visit Bellevue in Memphis. Whew. But you know, I've never had the opportunity to visit the church that I consider, just in my finite mind, to be the most powerful church in America today. The reason I think it's the most powerful because it's performing ministry in the midst of the darkest culture you can imagine. It's found in Brooklyn, New York. 
You've heard us sing many of their songs. Brooklyn Tabernacle. Pastor by, Dr. by Brother Jim Cimbala, his wife Carol is the uh, music director. In Brooklyn, New York, they know what it is to fight the demons of darkness. Pimps, pushers, and prostitutes frequent that place to find help and hope. You don't just talk about God in the abstract there. You have to talk about God in the present. Because he's a deliverer. He's a changer. He's a savior of souls. Savior of men. They don't know what it is to have a six-figure income. But every time I've heard testimonies from those folks at the Brooklyn Tab, I've been inspired that God is still in the life-changing business. He don't just take us and leave us in the culture just like we are. He takes us and changes us. That is the model church. I wonder today, folks, if God were to come walk in this door right now, or as far as that's concerned, just come through the roof. If God were to come here in bodily form right now, would he look over this crowd and would he say, that's a changed people. Or would he say something else? You see, the truth is, salvation is turning to God from idols. In Brooklyn, New York, is turning to God and leaving behind that needle, that next fix, that next man or woman to give you money for your body. And you say, Brother Jerry, I don't have any idols. Oh, really? Really? Is that right? I don't have anything sitting on my mantle at the house that I worship. Yeah, you're probably right. I dare say you got an idol. I think the number one, you've heard me say this, the number one broken commandment in America today is the first commandment, no other gods. You see, because a, an idol is simply anything that you put ahead and put more focus on, give more attention to than the Father. An idol is anything that you put more attention and focus on to than you do him. Ed Litton says that an idol can be a good thing that you've made into the ultimate thing, so now it's a bad thing. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. You see, in this church, they were... They were on salvation because they had turned to God and they had turned from their idols, from the, from the things of the past, from the things that held them captive. And I'm just going to tell you, turning to God, turning away from those things that hold us bondage is a mark of a church, of a model church, because it is a mark of a model Christ follower. You cannot serve God and man, you cannot serve God and mammon. A model church has turned from their idol to God and salvation has come into the house, but they're not pleased with that. They're not just satisfied with that. Maybe they are pleased, but they're not satisfied with that because now they know other people who need to come into the house for salvation. Have you ever considered, I tried to do this and having some trouble with our statistics. Have you considered that in our congregation, it takes almost 50 of us one year to win one person to Christ. 
You see, the starting point for a model church is salvation. The starting point is making it a priority. Turning to God for models. When you get to the second piece of evidence here, is that one of the ways that it was so evident that they focused on salvation and that they had actually turned from God to idols is the second thing that I'll tell you, service. Service. Because then it says, you know, the, the way they know you turn from God to, turn to God from idols is that you serve the living and the true God. Now you get back to verse 3, watch this. You have the work of faith, you turn to God from idols, then you have the labor of love, which is to serve the true and living God. It was their labor of love. They served God together. You know, when I read these two letters, you know what it seems to me like? It seems to me like that these folks in this church had most of the people serving. Watch this. Now, now there were a few lazy buds there. Just lazy, and if you go to chat, you go to the second letter. Paul said, "Okay, they don't want to work; they don't eat." You see, Paul had no tolerance for lazy and disengaged folks who said they were followers of Christ. He said that we should step up. Every believer, every believer should be a member of a church. Every member of a church should be a minister in and through that church. Let me make you mad at me. Regardless of what you have been taught, it could have been your favorite preacher in days gone by. Regardless of what you think, here's what I'm going to tell you. The pastor is not the main or the only minister in a church. In fact, go to Acts chapter 6. You go to Acts chapter 6. A complaint. They were Baptists. A complaint came to the apostles. They said, we're not leaving our calling you find some guys that we think are the forerunners of the deacons. And they stepped out and do ministry. You see, the truth is, the truth is, the preacher, you won't find in, you won't find in this book that the preacher is the only minister. You won't even find that he is the best minister. What you will find is that the church members each have a ministry. The church members have a ministry. Oh, the pastor may be the only minister in the messed up church, but it's surely not in the model church. I love you. My tenth year here. But I just need to be candid with you. Some of you are letting God down. God has called you to do something, and you're flat not doing it, and you're depending on somebody else to do it. Oh, but Brother Jerry, I was young one time, and I could do a lot one time, but I can't do that anymore. You're right. You're right. But here's what I'll tell you. It might be nothing but being a prayer warrior, sitting in your rocking chair. If that's all you can do, it might be just sitting there and interceding for God, saying, God, I really want you to do a work in our church. I really want you to do a work in life. I want you to do a work in this community. I want you to bless the pastor. I want you to bless the deacons. Bless, bless our pastoral ministry team. Bless our student leadership team. Lord, bless and be on the wall there. We need some watchmen on the wall praying. We need some folks who will, who will write cards. God may have given you the gift to write cards. Write cards. I'm going to pick on somebody, and it'll be easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. But I appreciate Doris Thompson more than you know. Now, there's many other folks I appreciate, but I'm going to tell you, I appreciate Doris Thompson. I used to tease her and call her the Minister of Information. 
But you know what the truth is? Doris, have, Doris one of the Doris gifts is she, she watches and she knows and she lets us know. For some of you, it's a matter that God's called you to help in the nursery. You, you can physically do it, and you just won't. For, for some, God's called you to sing for crying out loud, and you're not singing. For some, God's called you to visit. For some, God's called you, listen, to cook. For some, God's called you to just encourage. We need some encouragers. I hate to say it, but we got enough discouragers. I am, have yet to have somebody come sit in my office and go, Brother Jerry, would you give me another job? Because this bunch of people are encouraging me so much, I just got to do some more. But I can tell you this, I've had more than one to sit in there and go, I'm quitting. And I go, okay, why? People are all on my back, and all I'm trying to do is serve the Lord. You see, the model church serves together. I'll just tell you a couple of things. First of all, you can't rock a boat and row a boat at the same time. You see, when we get on board with what God's called us to do, some of these things don't really matter, particularly in light of eternity. And we need to be brave enough that when somebody begins to be a discourager and a, and a bad voice, we need to say, you need to shut up. This is God's church, and you're not going to do that anymore. You have my permission. If they get mad at you, you say, come on, let's go see the preacher and the deacons. Come on. You see, folks, I believe it's time for us to stand up. I believe God wants us to do a, a great work in this community. And, and I think he wants us to have a great spiritual impact in this community. But if we're going to do it, listen, we've got to turn around some statistics around here. Eighty percent of the people, excuse me, eighty percent of the people do about twenty percent of the work. 20% of the people do about 80% of the work. Actually, I'll amend that a little bit. You've probably got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. 70% of the people doing 20% of the work. And 10% not lifting their finger to do a thing. Now, when I was in a volunteer fire unit, you didn't lift your finger to do a thing. You know what they did? They kicked you out. I wonder, what, I wonder how God views that. You see, we need to do it together in unity and harmony, reaching people in salvation, serving together. Albert Schweitzer um, is a story that kind of comes to mind. Back in 1913, he left America. He left what was a promising career. He left money, prestige, and power, and he went to Africa. And his first operating room was a hen house. His first operating table was a... Um, old count board. After he'd been there for a while, he came back to the United States, and a reporter said, Dr. Schweitzer, have you found happiness in Africa? And he said, I have found my place of service, and that should be enough for anybody. Church is a place of service. The family of God is a place of service. You can contrast the attitude of Albert Schweitzer with, Schweitzer with the ladies, uh, two ladies standing over the fence talking, Mike. One of them says, I don't understand why you go to church. And the other lady said, oh, you, 
Listen, you don't know what you're missing. After being at work all week, it's just so wonderful to sit on the pew and think about nothing. You see, the truth is the model church is a church that, like Jesus, serves others. It's a, it's a, it's a place where we serve. Tonight we're going to hear. Let me just give you a couple of practical things. Tonight we're going to hear from Angie Teak. Director of the Grace Place will be here at 6 o'clock. She's going to come give us a 10-minute presentation about the Grace Place. It is a place of service. It is a place that's meeting people's needs. It is a place where people are being saved tonight. In our leadership team meeting, one of the things that come forward that we could do to, to <laughs> I keep picking on Rod. He didn't know this was going to be burned in effigy. In our leadership team meeting, I've already told you this, that one of the things that he said he'd like is to be able to talk to somebody in this town and them not go, now where is that church? And so we got to talk about how we could do that. One of our members came up with this idea. <laughs> where do our people in this community go? Everybody just about goes. Where? Ballpark. Now, you say, well, I don't go there. Well, I understand. I'm not, a, I'm not a big observer, but you like it or not, you drive by over there, right across from my house, they're there. And so one of the things that we have, uh, we're putting together, we want you to be a part of it, is what we're going to call our ballpark ministry. Every year, now they only, seven or eight weeks, one of you guys, about seven or eight weeks, they have a ball season. And the parents have to work the concession stand uh, a certain amount of time. And it was suggested to us that if we wanted to minister to those parents and let them know who we are, that we care, that perhaps once or twice in those seven or eight weeks that we staff the uh, concession stand. Now, we've got some logistical things to go to, but we need about 20, 25 people. You have a place to respond right there. We need 20 or 25 people. Now, let me just tell you, some of you cannot do it, and I understand that. God understands that, but you can pray for it. Some of you, you're going to have to stand on your feet. I'm guessing a shift is three or four hours. And so you're going to have to be able to stand on your feet. You have to be nice. And you have to be nice when it's not convenient to be nice. What we want to do is we want to get the team together, get, them, get us trained to how we've got to be trained. We want to make shirts that says something about... Huey Town Church and our Lord and our love for people. And we want to go in there and let those parents on that day go see their kids play ball instead of work the concession stand. I'll just ask you this question. Brother Jerry, that's not very spiritual. Well, let me just ask you this question. What happens if that mom, this is the only time that she's going to get to be at the ballpark and we, uh, and we say, you don't have to be here today. We'll be here today. And she goes, well, who are y'all? Well, you know, we're here because we're Hueytown Baptist Church. We love our Lord. We love you. We want to give you a break. And all of a sudden, God begins to use that little nugget. And next thing you know, she's walked into the church and visited us. Land sakes, if she doesn't know the Lord, she comes to know the Lord. And someone who's been on their way to hell is now on their way to heaven just because we went and worked the concession stand. Well, Jerry, I don't think I like that. Well, come up with something better. I've been trying to think. I'm just telling you, I've been thinking for all the years I've been here how we could do something there and never come up with it. To this parent in our church said, this is a way and the parents will love you for it. Folks, the truth is, with a simple effort, 
with simple effort, we can serve like the model church. And it's not what is in it for us, what is in it for me. More, it's what's in me for it. Model church, salvation, service. But there's one more thing here. It identifies the model model church. Certainly, salvation is front and center. You can't be a part of a model church. You can't have a model church if people are not saved and getting saved. You cannot have a model church if people are not serving and getting served. But watch this third thing here. It is what I call the second coming. Look in verse 10. It says, To wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus, whom He raised from the dead and who delivers us from the wrath to come. And if you want to go back to verse 3 again, the work of faith is turning to God from idols. The labor of love is to serve the true and living God. And the steadfastness of hope is waiting on Jesus to come the second time. The model church has one eye on the fields white on the harvest and one eye on the eastern sky, not really caring as long as they stay faithful. Jesus, come back. As, as John said, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You see, Jesus is the one that is raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who changes us. And He is the one who is returning one day to carry us home. The model church, are you ready? The model church looks to, looks at, looks for, and looks like Jesus. The model church. The model church knows that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I'll just give you three reasons why you know we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Why we know that the end is coming. It's coming soon. First of all, there's the signs. There'll be wars. There'll be rumors of wars. Goodness, there'll be earthquakes, pestilence. Have you, are you watching the news? Are you, are you watching and reading the same news I'm reading? It's like flipping the Bible open and seeing it happen. Earthquakes, rise of evil, ISIS. Folks, you better pay attention to what's going on in the Middle East. If not, we're going to wake up one morning and it's going to be here. Signs. Second thing that I'll tell you is that it's the attitude of our culture. It makes me believe that somebody told me this as we changed the year. They thought Jesus was coming in 2015. Honestly, that didn't make my daughter happy. She's been praying for Jesus to return before Piper got to be a teenager ever since she was born. So I'll tell you why attitudinally I believe it can happen because the Bible says in an hour that you think not, I'll come. Nobody's looking for Jesus today. The third thing is Jesus' promise. He said, man, if I'm going, I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back. The angels in Acts 1 said, this same Jesus. And if you just flip over in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, you see here that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, a voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. You see, the question is, are you ready? Are you ready? You need to hear this truth. Many people say, oh, I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to go to heaven. But there's a difference in being ready to go to heaven and being ready to stand before God.
And I just tell you, you don't get to heaven without standing before God. The model church. We see in the scripture, salvation, service, second coming. Now, there are many more attributes that we could add there. We could add sanctification. We could add separation. We could add sharing. We could, we could add a whole bunch of things. But I'm going to mention one to you because it's just, we don't like to mention it in American church. And I'm going to tell you why I don't think it's in this passage. And that is the word sacrifice. It's quiet. Sacrifice. That means paying the price. That means it's not about your comfort and your convenience. It's not about pew cushions or the warmth in the building. It's not about your class or your group. It's not about music. It's about giving all to him. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Do you know why I don't think it's listed in this model church? Because if you read the history of this model church, you discover that they had to sacrifice. You discover that they had opposition because of who they were and whose they were and the life they lived. seems to me, as I read God's Word, that sacrifice goes hand in hand. That we turn loose of something we love for someone we love. Can I ask this today? How does the message that we heard stack up? How does it stack up against us? How does it stack up against God's eyes when we look at the evidence when we look at this evidence and we, and we compare it to us, will it prove guilt or will it prove innocence? We were put on tr- trial for being a model church. Would there be enough evidence to convict? Okay, let's make it personal as we end. If you're put on trial, would they convict you and call you a Christ follower, Christian? Or would the outcome be not guilty? I wonder as God looks down on us, knowing us completely from the inside out, knowing whether we're ready for the second coming or not, knowing whether we're serving or not, Because knowing whether we have actually been changed by the power of God or not. If God looks down, what does he say? Let's pray together.